When we talk about digital transformation, a key component is change. And we talk about change management, exactly what that means in the context of digital transformation, we can discuss. But the notion of change agents, the people who are driving change, who are helping push and accelerate innovation, is very important. And today on episode number 140 of CXO Talk, I'm speaking with David Bray, who is the CIO of the Federal Communications Commission, and Karina Dubois, who is a strategist and senior communications expert for the Secretary of Defense and the Department of Defense. And Karina, I know I just mangled your title, so I apologize about that, but in a second you can tell us your exact title. I'm Michael Krigsman, and uh, David, how are you? I'm great, how are you, Michael? Great, and Karina, thank you for joining us. This is your first time on CXO Talk. Thanks for having me, I'm happy to be here. So to begin, Karina, since I mangled your title, tell us about Tell us your exact title and tell us what you do at the Department of Defense. Well, the title doesn't matter, matter so much. It's more about what we're able to do. But I am a strategic planner and communications advisor for the Office of the Secretary of Defense. So that means I get to think about the future of what the Secretary would like to accomplish while he's there at the Department of Defense and how that affects the public. Um, and that can be our external or our internal publics. Okay, so you are advising the Secretary of Defense from a uh, communications strategy and public perception perspective. Is that, is that correct? Absolutely. I do a lot of writing and thinking about what it is we want to accomplish as a team with him at this year. Mm -hmm. And uh, do you want to give us a little bit more insight, explain the, the kinds of things you're thinking about, making it a little bit more concrete? Um, that's a really good way to get at what I do day to day. So um, the Secretary of Defense, as you know, thinks about a lot of different um, areas where change is needed or um, policy is needed. And so it could be anything from what's important to us in the biotech field or um, how we want to think about innovating from outside the five-sided walls of the Pentagon or uh, what's important to us on Veterans Day and thanking people for the service that they've done to our country. It runs that gamut of all of the different issues that face the Department of Defense and our country. Great, uh, thank you. Uh, so David, you're the CIO of the FCC. So why don't you give us uh, a brief sense about your role and the things you do at the FCC? Sure. Uh, so at the FCC, I oversee the IT for the Federal Communications Commission. The FCC itself has been around since 1934. Uh, we have 18 different bureaus and offices, and basically the scope of the FCC is interacting with the public and industry on anything that's wired or wireless. And so when I arrived at the FCC, I think actually I shortly showed up, shortly after my arrival back in late 2013 with you on a CXO talk back on number 45. So here we are 95 episodes later. Uh, when I arrived, we had 207 different systems, average age for 10 years old, for a commission of only 1,750 people. And that just wasn't sustainable. We were spending more than 85% of our budget trying to maintain those systems. And the good news is, after one, doing some pioneering efforts to show that we could go to the cloud, we could go to the cloud and do computing at one-sixth the price and half the time that it would take if we did it on-premise, as of this Labor Day weekend, 
all the systems that we historically had at the FCC, the 200 different systems, uh, more than 400 different applications. We either went to the cloud or we literally loaded it up into seven different trucks and we've now moved them to a commercial provider. So there are no systems hosted on-premise at FCC anymore. All right, so, so you have given up on-premise systems. How is that even possible? Um, it's actually quite possible. One, I feel more comfortable going to the cloud in the sense that, again, we're small. We're only 750 people. And even if I took all the IT people I had and had them focus on the care and maintaining of the systems, again, I was mentioning 85% of our budget was just on maintaining those systems, I wouldn't be able to do any new IT. And there are things that we have to update because, again, our systems are so old. And so by making this move to going off-premise and going to the cloud, it really allows us to actually focus on spending more and more of our budget that we have at the same amount to actually try and actually move forward with new development. We actually are now spending less than 50% of our cost maintaining those systems. And I also recognize that when I go to a public cloud model, one, it's faster and more expedient, but then two, it's also going to be more resilient because they're going to have hundreds more people focusing on the security, on the care and feeding of those systems than I possibly would have at a small agency. Okay, so Karina, you're focused on uh, communication strategy. David, you're focused on technology strategy. And yet, for both of you, a key part of what you're trying to do is to innovate within your respective spheres and to drive forward, to push change inside each of your departments, right? So, and, and the title of this show is, is Change Agents. So is that a fair assessment that, that for both of you, you're, you're, you are trying to push change? Absolutely. I'm actually quite new to my current role, but previously I was at the State Department in Consular Affairs, and I was Chief of New Media for the Bureau of Consular Affairs. So I got to think about the way that we communicated with the public via different online, web, mobile, social app development. And so that was sort of the crux of bringing technology along with communications to try to figure out the best way to reach people in a way that they expect to find the information. I would say a good part of my job was spent either strategizing or almost evangelizing why we needed to use new innovative technology, things that focus on public sector items, still maintaining safety and security, building once, using many times, being able to reach multiple audiences with the same data, but maybe just different points of that data. Okay, so, so when we talk about the need for change in the federal government, maybe this seems like an obvious question, and we talk about change agents. Why the focus on change agents? And again, maybe it seems like an obvious question, but you guys are in the federal government, so, so I think uh, coming from you carries a, a lot more weight than just somebody on the street, such as myself, making that comment or an observation. So change agents, I think, are particularly necessary now because the world we're in is changing so quickly. Uh, 2013, there were 7 billion network devices on the face of the planet, 7 billion human beings on the face as well, on the planet as well. This year alone, two years later after 2013, there are now 14 billion network devices on the face of the planet. And come 2022, anywhere between 75 and 300 billion. Uh, the same thing's happening with data. The amount of data on the face of the planet is doubling every two years. Back in 2013, there were 4 billion terabytes of data on the face of the planet. That's the equivalent of 400 million libraries of Congress. The Library of Congress is about 10 terabytes. By the time we get to 2022, it will be 96 terabytes. So that will be 9,600 million libraries of Congress, which is extremely huge. 
And when you put that in perspective, it's going to be more data than all human eyes see in the course of a year on the planet. Now, in the private sector, we see this happening with Silicon Valley and other parts of the United States as well, where basically people are iterating quickly, and they're able to do the fail fast and fail often model. The challenge that we have in public service is, one, we're not going to have an IPO. We don't have an initial stock offering at the end of the day. We are stewards of taxpayers' dollars. And if you fail with taxpayers' dollars, people are going to say, why? And that it isn't a slush fund. You can't spend it like you would a venture capital fund. And so I think we have to have this conversation about where we're going to. There is no textbook for what we need to do. At the same time, we can't take all the principles from Silicon Valley because we can't fail fast and fail often. We also have to recognize the narrative that is present in public service, which is, you can go back to the Federal Papers, 1788. James Madison said he wanted ambition to counter ambition with the Federal Papers number 51. He wanted checks and balances in the system. And so sometimes people lament government is slow to change, it takes a while. But that's actually part of the intentional checks and balances. And that's actually why, when I first met Karina, I recognized one, she was a fellow change agent. But then two, it's important to meet other change agents, not just within your agency, but across agencies, because the only real way you get change done that's lasting in public service is to build those net networks and to build that consensus, such as some for the bottoms up, that you do have lasting change going forward. I think one of the opportunities that we have, and one of the key reasons why... Hey, I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, please uh, try to speak loudly and project your voice towards the microphone. Sorry. Okay. I, sorry I about that. All right, we'll project. <laughs> I think one of the key things that we can use as an opportunity is that this sort of innovation and change hasn't been done before. So there's not always regulations that stop us from being able to do things. And having other change agents and other people that give you that reality check and say, this is a smart way to go forward. We're also doing similar things. Let's create this footprint. Let's create the policies and the budgets and the structures that can get us to that next step. Let's move beyond we can't do it because we've never been able to do it and get to let's do this smarter and let's do this together. And I think approaching that from a whole of government makes it so that we have a bigger footprint to make. So, so there's this notion that if you can identify other change agents, then you can come together and help consolidate that influence, that, that, that push towards innovation in a stronger way? I think so. It's also the recognition that in any organization, you don't expect everyone to be thinking about disruption and innovation. I mean, that's just not feasible. I mean, it was actually Ford Motor Company back when it looked at it said about 20% of the people in their organization are really doing 80% of the change agent work. And I think that would be the same thing that's true in public service. The thing that's interesting, though, is in the era we're facing, if you try and do top-down change, it's often out of date by the time it actually gets implemented. And so you need to think about how can we do bottoms-up change. And the challenge with that is, whereas you can do bottoms-up change in the private sector by creating your own startup and being entrepreneurial, in public service, how do you do bottoms-up change, recognizing that at the end of the day, anything we do actually has to be authorized by law. And law itself is top-down. And so it's this interesting conundrum of, can we create these creative spaces in which change agents can show what's possible, they can build a coalition of the willing, they can demonstrate that we can take these steps forward, such that the people that are more the uh, late adopters or even laggards are willing to then move along after seeing what's possible. And I think that's a conversation that's hard to have because people expect they can just take what's going on in Silicon Valley and transplant it to what's going on in government, whether it's be at the local level, state level, or federal level. I think what we're saying is there's great lessons to be learned from Silicon Valley, 
But we also need to understand that there are existing narratives, there are existing challenges. I mean, our budget in the executive branch is not set in the executive branch. It's actually set in the legislative branch. And that's something that's not present when you're dealing with a private sector company, that a private sector company has autonomy about where it sets its budget and sets its priorities. So budget and priorities is a really both great points. I have found success in figuring out what it is my leaders are trying to accomplish and figuring out how I can help them do that and then try to demonstrate value and ask them, where can we budget for this? And a lot of times people don't know because they just haven't thought about repurposing their resources that way. So if I can demonstrate that there's a, a reason and a value, not only to our leaders but to the publics that we serve, then I'm able to get buy-in and almost walk backwards and downwards to be able to then um, reprioritize and allocate the energy, the resources, the budget, the time, and maybe sometimes even the IT systems that we're using to be able to accomplish those goals. So, so uh, developing quick wins or making it clear the, the value of the change, making it clear. How do you overcome fearfulness? Because you can demonstrate, hey, this is great, but, but there's still risk associated with change. How do you address that? I think that you have to be realistic about it, and you have to get people to buy into taking measurable and reasonable risks. So I'll give you an example. Um, when I was at the State Department, uh, part of our role was to give timely and relevant emergency information to people as they were traveling overseas. Like today, Mexico is about to have a huge hurricane hit them, right? So they want to get data out to them as quickly as possible with information. So what I did was I looked at ways that we could do that so that many different people give the same information that we are putting out as an official source many times through APIs. And most people in the bureaucracy had no idea what an API was. And once I explained that that's how we all checked our weather from a different device, either style, size, or platform, and got the same weather information, that is, I explained it in the API format for people that weren't familiar. So I said, what happens if we can tell the whole world what we what places we think are safe or not, and be able to do that and let other people tell that story for us? It took a long time, but we got the buy-in, we got the technology, we invested in the cloud, and we were able to start developing data sets for APIs. I had somebody who I really enjoyed working with and always will. Uh, at the time, he was my direct supervisor. And he came to me and he said, you know what? They're just not using the data right. They're not doing what we want them to do with it. And so we actually had to sit down and think as an organization, are we comfortable with people using our information the way they want to use it? instead of being very government-driven where we're telling people this is the way thou shall use the information. And so it was a huge cultural shift to be able to say we're going to take this risk and we know that people aren't going to do exactly what we want them to do, but in the end, we are servicing our public and we are meeting our goals and needs with these new resources. And I think to actually emphasize what Karina said, there is no textbook for the new world we're facing. And so we have to be willing to experiment. And oftentimes when I talk about this with people and they are concerned or they have concerns about risk or fear, it's worth pointing out that expert, the Greek word meaning out of danger, is a root for both expertise as well as experiments. And that the only way you get expertise is use dangerous things, which are experiments. And so it's having that conversation with the public saying, 
look, we want to do what we can do in terms of the best we can with the resources we have. We also want to hear from you. And so that's why both Karina and I are on Twitter. That's why I listen to the public. I want to learn as much as possible. Because one, I know I'm not going to have all the answers. In fact, there's a wonderful Harvard Business article that says, in praise of incomplete leaders, that the best leaders actually admit they have blind spots. And with that said, recognizing we are going to take risks because that's the only way we're going to keep up with this exponential era, and we're actually going to do dangerous things. We're going to do experiments, see what work out. Um, at the end of the day, if we have that drive, if we have that receptiveness to learn from people, and even most importantly, we have that determination to get stuff done. In fact, we have this phrase at FCC, which is GSD, which is short for get stuff done, and maybe something else if you're in a different <laughs> context. Um, we'll power through whatever happens, and we'll learn from it. And the goal is to keep up with the pace of change that's happening globally, society, and technologically. What about this notion of the umbrella of buy-in? The notion of the umbrella of buy-in. Give me a little bit more. Oh, uh, David, you've spoken about that in terms of culture, in terms of changing the culture and the need to gain buy-in from from your peers. How do you balance, uh, if you're trying to drive change in a large organization, how do you balance uh, the need for buy-in versus just pushing forward, you know, damn the torpedoes all full speed ahead? Right. So on that one, at least I'll say from my own experience, you can't always be disruptive. If you're always being disruptive, then you're actually not meeting anybody's expectations. And if you don't meet anyone's expectations, then you don't have any allies that back you up when you take something risky and it doesn't work out. And so that's where I do tell people that, one, the, group, the Greek word lead means to send unto death. And it's actually the root of the word leadership. So leadership is being sent unto death. And that's because back in ancient Greece, the leaps were the ones that carried the flag in front of the melee army. And that's all well and good until one melee army meets another melee army and who's the first to die? The leaps. And so you do have to get buy-in. You also have to understand the narrative. Um, when I arrived at the FCC, the average person had been here for 15 and a half years. The average contractor had been here for 19 years. And so when I said we're going to move to a public cloud and we're going to go to everything off-premise, um, that actually did create some fear in the sense that I'm going to lose my friends that I've been dealing with for 15 years because now we're going to have things off-site. And it wasn't anything related to technology at all. So you need to understand the narrative. You need to figure out how you can adapt it. I also think it's useful to actually ask people what brings them joy because, one, it, one puts them in a reflective state of mood, but then, two, you find out what they're really interested in and passionate about. And so that even if you have to change or disrupt things, maybe you can still be consistent with what brings them joy so that, yes, you're moving someone's cheese, but maybe you're still getting them to a place where they can provide benefit and actually find enjoyment in the work they're doing. I found the most value in actually playing by all the rules in the beginning. One, it's so that I can learn them and know which lane to stay in. But two, that organizationally and positionally, people trust that the things that I'm talking to them about are things that are for the benefit of the organization, not my benefit of, as a leader. Sometimes I push forward ideas that I particularly don't really care for, but I think that they're best for the organization or the people that we serve. And I, I think if you want to take a risk, knowing that you have that background and that balance and that trust, it does make it a lot easier to say, hey, this is going to seem a little wackadoodle, but just hear me out. And I'm also, I've also found great value in being able to be told no. And sometimes it means let's walk away from that. And other times it means that I didn't give you enough information to get to a yes. So I get to go back and think about how we get there. 
And sometimes that means calling up other people that are change agents and saying, how did you get here? Help me out with this. So trust is the foundation, in a sense, of being able to drive change through a large organization. Absolutely. In fact, uh, trust, and I would define trust as the willingness to be vulnerable to somebody else that you can't control. Um, and with that, one of the things that I often state, and when I arrived at the FCC, I said we really have three core values, which is we need to be have benevolence, we need to have competency, and we need to have integrity. And it's interesting because those three things of benevolence, competency, and integrity are actually the things that if you think those things are true about a person, then science has shown that psychologically you're then willing to be vulnerable to them, and that therefore you actually trust them. And I think that benevolence key piece is key because we are in public service. And the other thing that also is the case is I'm a nonpartisan senior executive, which means I don't side with either party. And that means I have to be trusted by both parties as being someone who's apolitical. I'm not bringing my political agenda to my role. I will deliver what we have to do. And at the end of the day, I need to be focused on what's the biggest impact to the public and the best contributions that can be done. So change then is a function of trust. Is that, is that an accurate statement? Yes, you can only get lasting change with trust. And I think that that's also one of the things that makes it so hard to be a Fed. A lot of people don't trust that we are actually trying to do the best that we can. And I'm not going to say that every federal employee is, but there are a lot of us. There are a lot of us. (laughs) We're glad that you're there listening to us and talking. Um, We like to listen back. But from a public perspective, if people don't trust us as an institution, it's difficult when we do try to change things, even if it's for the better, to try to make it so that people are trusting that we have their best interests. And that's inherent in the government. And I think it's something that every Fed, whether they show up with 100% or not, understand that when they come into the door at work every day, um, that people might not buy into everything that, that you're selling because they don't trust you. And it's your role to continue to build that. I also think, Michael, you're hitting on a key point about trust, because I do have concerns that the rate of social, global, and technological change is happening so fast that people are feeling the strains on the system, not just the strain on the system in terms of government, but the strains in the system just in terms of what's my identity, what's my life, uh, where do I fit in the world? And that itself, the rapid pace of change, is causing distrust in institutions, in particular with government. And so we have this risk that while the United States, we do have checks and balances in the system, we don't want things to move quickly because we don't want any one person to have too much power. It's worth pointing out that the founders actually fought a war against the king. The last thing they want is the king-like individual. And we know that power corrupts absolutely. Power corrupts absolutely. But the rate of technological change itself may be causing distrust in the federal government, and that becomes an issue because then what takes its place? I think there's also the case where in the past, we've had people who were government professionals, and that was seen as different than people that were in the public. And actually, if I could make a suggestion, now with communications and technology, members of the public can if they want to. They don't have to if they don't want to. They can be participants. Uh, when, we, when I arrived at the FCC, we did launch the FCC speed test app, which is if you chose to, you could actually monitor your own connection speed on broadband or on wireless and anonymously share that. We wouldn't know your IP address. We wouldn't know where you were in a five-mile radius. You could share that with the FCC to inform policy. And we actually made a code open source so that people could see we didn't know your IP address. They saw that we did privacy by design. 
And it turned out for a while to be the fourth most downloaded app right behind Google Chrome on the iOS store. And so I think we can actually, in this new age, think about the role of public service isn't something that government professionals have to be the only ones doing. It actually can be something that the public can do, as Karina was talking about with like, crisis response or things like that. It can also be something that maybe public-private partnerships can do. But we need to figure out those new organizational forms because the world is moving so quickly, and it doesn't have to just be something that each of us as government professionals are the only ones doing. But if the public wants to and is hungry to do, they can also have the opportunity as well. I think the public actually has a great opportunity right now, especially with social media, because never before have their voices been heard without that gatekeeper. And to continually use these new platforms, the public forces the government to change. They have to keep up. Nobody wants to testify in front of Congress. Why didn't we listen to what we were hearing on Twitter? Right? So keep it coming, everybody. Just, <laughs> just, 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 not political. <laughs> just don't tag me. <laughs> So we have a great question from Bob Rothman, who asks, how do you deal with change when your intent is good, but the public is cynical? And I would actually amend that question to say, how do you deal with change when your intent is good, but inside your own organization, you're surrounded by anti-innovation antibodies, the people who do not want change. Well, that's why I drink wine. <laughs> <laughs> we have happy hours with other change agents because when you're banging your head against the wall, it's nice to know you're not the only one doing it. I do think to some degree we're both masochists in that I actually thrive when there's anti-innovation antibodies present because, you know what, I'll be honest, if I took a job that had been done before or someone said was easy, I would get bored. And in fact, I do tend to move on to different jobs only because I want the job that people say it's near impossible. It's never going to work. It's, you know, they've had nine CEOs in eight years. Why are you coming into this role? And so I think for both of us, we actually thrive a little bit about it actually being an impossible mission. It's almost like Sherlock Holmes when he has a case. It's like the game is afoot. Um, I think the, the other thing is we're both on social media. Be transparent about what you're trying to do. Be transparent about the fact you have limited resources or you don't get to set your own budget. Um, in some cases, as Karina mentioned, third parties saying things may be listened to more because we're, they're, they're not in the system. You know, if I say we need to change, well, people are going to say, yeah, yeah, he's in the system. Or maybe he's just trying to get a bigger budget because he wants to have a bigger empire, which is definitely not what I'm trying to do. But... Having that sort of building those peer-to-peer -peer networks involve people on the outside, involve sort of strategies to keep you sane, and really sort of figure out that narrative, that conversation about why. What is that sense of urgency, why we must change? Because if you can have that sense of urgency, it's often an easier way to clear that path. But you do have to be willing to take flack. I mean, I think each of us do in our jobs. And oftentimes people will never know the flack that we're encountering as we try to be change agents. True. Um, I mentioned earlier, if somebody tells me no, or they don't find value in what's happening, I actually respect that and enjoy, I don't enjoy hearing it, but I take it in and I think, well, well, why is that happening and why should I change that, right? Is it because I want to change it or is it because there's actually a need? And so um, I have found looking at data is a great way to be able to, to say, Here, here's the information here's why we need to do this, here's who's asking for it, and here is the value that it will bring, right? And sometimes 
that know that I get is good and sends me back and lets me know that maybe I'm going down the wrong path, right? So part of my job is to be fluid and is to listen to those people that say, this is never going to work. I will agree with David. Probably the best thing, besides drinking wine in the evening, is when somebody comes and says, you know what, I didn't believe it, and now I do. And I might not like it. I might not do it. I might not get on the Twitter. But <laughs> but I understand the value in what we're doing now as an organization. Yes, and I think those are the moments you have to hold on to because there will always be resistance, but when you can overcome it, and I think Karina's being really modest. So, Michael, if I could allow Karina to tell us a little bit about how sometimes you're just changing just by where you are in your role. So, can you tell us a little bit about your role in the Navy? <laughs> Absolutely. I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> uh, I was one of the first females on combat ships. And I served, when I first reported on board, um, there were six females and the ship's crew. And then when the Marines came on, there was about 3,000 more males. And we set out for our first Navy Westpac with... I think about 60 females um, with the same ratio of males. And at the time, I didn't really realize that there was anything new going on. I was in boot camp right before, you know, a couple years before that first integrated male-female boot camp. Didn't really think anything about that. Now, looking back, I realized the relationships that I made with other women that were in that same situation, with men that supported us through those situations, and the way that we reacted as, as professionals and personally um, really shaped what that community became. And I would say to anybody that's listening today or, or later, if you're in one of those new situations and you don't realize that you're paving the path, you actually are. And it's nice to take a deep breath and be able to think, how, how do I do this in a manner that I want somebody to do it 20 years from now? Right. I think it's key to be a non-anxious presence. And I think that's what you embody with your U.S. Navy service. And I think sometimes change you don't recognize until 10 or 15 years later. But definitely the case here. So, Karina, I have to ask, what was that like? <laughs> <laughs> that must have been some experience. It was surreal. Uh, first of all, I'm directionally challenged, so I can only figure out how to get <laughs> like find where the mess decks were. So I was going through my own personal crisis when I got on board because I couldn't find anything except where the food was. I guess that that was important. Um, but it, it was surreal. I definitely at that time walked into a room and was a female first and a professional second. And um, I have a very good friend who was on board that ship with me. Um, her name's Andy um, Burdening good, and she has now since commanded her own ship, and she's stationed overseas right now. Um, and her and I walked into a room together one day, and it was the middle of the night. We were doing some engineering exercises underway, and we had been told that we needed to stick around because you know we were going to be part of what was going on. When we entered this room, she's no idea I'm telling this story. Uh, when we entered the room, we were asked to provide beverages. Um, for the engineering crews that were visiting on board. Oh, really, really? And Andy looked at me and said, I, I didn't join the Navy to serve coffee, did you? And I said, no, actually, that's not why I joined the Navy or why I came on board this ship. And we turned around and we walked out of the room. And I didn't realize at the time I probably could have lost my job and like, gone to jail. For him. But it was uh, having somebody that was like that, a change agent, didn't, we didn't even realize that that what was going to happen, but that was our mindset, and that was the way that we were able to pay. But you took, the, but that's a, a, 
an interesting example. Uh, it's an interesting example for, for a bunch of reasons, but one of which is in order to drive a change in attitudes on that ship among uh, officers, you took a very significant personal risk. As you said, you could have lost your job, you could have gone to jail. And in a way, isn't that the fundamental difference between people who are willing and comfortable with change and those who are not is the willingness to take that risk. I think that that's a great point. I mean, my friend and I knew each other in a professional capacity and enjoyed reading books together. Not once did we ever say, okay, if anybody gives us a hard time, we're going to, you know, propose <laughs> <Say> no. <laughs> the riveter and tell them no. Uh, it is just something that happened and it happened very naturally. And it didn't feel like the way that we were reacting was wrong. So that helped shape my career, not only as a professional, but also as a female that, and working in sometimes IT sectors, I, I'm not, women are not as well represented as they should be. Um, and so that shapes the way that I look at, at organizations now, not just in the government, but those that we do work with and think about how are we representing all of the people, all of them as professionals, and how are we diving into the best roles that they can have. And I think, well, it is true. There's only going to be a certain amount of people that are going to be willing to put that risk on the line and be willing to actually say, well, maybe I can get fired or lose my job or even worse. Those people can then inspire other people that may be on the fence. And so I have no doubt that your actions probably later had other people saying, well, wait, I've been on the fence. And that actually tipped and cued my mind. And I think that's important in any organization you're in. While you may be the early adopter of whatever change is needed, think about how do you address those then later adopters and even the laggards so that you can win those hearts and minds because it really is about winning hearts and minds. So risk-taking then is a, a form of leadership. And if you combine risk-taking with trust and credibility, in a way, that's your definition of a change agent, is it not? Absolutely. And you can be at any level in any organization to be a leader, to be a risk-taker, and to be a change agent. You don't have to be at the very bottom with something to prove. You don't have to be at the very top with something to spend. You can be anywhere in that organization and truly affect that sort of change. And sometimes being a change agent means at that time and moment, you may be fired or you may be sent someplace else. Um, back in 2000, I signed up for a little-known program called the Biocares and Preparedness Response Program. And we were 30 people. I was the one IT person that also knew biology charged with what would we do if a biotechnology event ever happened in the United States. And we were only 30 people at an agency of, six, of 15, 16,000 people. And I was trying to push at the time, it was the early days of Agile and Scrum, and we were told, no, you have to do waterfall, you have to follow the five-year plan. And I say, I'm sorry, I don't have any deal with the bioterrorists that they're not going to strike until we actually get the system set up in five years. I need something that's a minimal viable product. And I was getting in trouble. In fact, the, uh, the enterprise IT was going to come after me and saying I was a troublemaker. And I almost left, except 9-11 happened, followed by the anthrax events, where literally on the fly, we took what capabilities we had done in an agile manner in less than 24 hours, implemented a way to actually monitor the anthrax events that were occurring in October and November. But have no doubt, I mean, there are going to be change agents who are doing the right thing that at the time are not rewarded or recognized, and it's only five or 10 or 15 years later that actually in hindsight, 
they were doing the right thing. They actually did hopefully move the organization to where it needed to go. And probably every decision that we try to push forward might not be the right thing. Right. Maybe you don't know that for 10 or 15 years. The intent to get there and, and to iterate, not just from an IT perspective, but actually from the way that you operate and take information and, and test things is key. So we only have about 10 minutes left. This conversation has really flown by very, very quickly. Uh, but let's try to develop a kind of framework for driving successful change in a large organization. Um, maybe, David, let's, let's start with you. If you were to lay out a framework for driving successful change in a large organization, what would the key points be? Um, so from my own experience, be humble, recognize you don't have all the answers, make sure you listen and learn to the existing narratives, don't come in guns a-blazing right away, else people are going to say, you never took the time to listen to me, why did I need to listen to you? Um, build a coalition. Um, oftentimes what I'll do is I'll pay out of my own pocket, I'll pay for coffee and donuts and say between the hours of 10 and 12, if anybody wants to come and tell me what they're hearing in an organization, I provided breakfast snacks, you tell me what you're hearing. And so that's gathering the narratives. And then once you've taken that time to begin to build that framework of you are listening to people, you've admitted you have blind spots, you want to learn, then you can begin to actually put out your narrative that maybe is taking existing narratives and slightly beginning to tweak them or picking the ones you want to amplify. And also, most importantly, creating a sense of urgency that is shared amongst that coalition because you can't do the change alone. You need to have other people embodying the sense that this is urgent. I like those ideas. Um, I work a little bit differently. I do start out understanding the organization and the needs and the way in which they've worked to meet those needs. But then I jump all the way forward and I think about where I want to be. In three years, what do I want to see? If I'm to leave an organization, what will that legacy be? And then I work backwards from there. Well, then who needs to know about this? Who needs to give buy-in? Um, you know, who, who needs to be consulted where I'm getting more information? What are the actual tactics that we have to start taking to get there? And that ladder run, I sort of move up and down over and over as whatever that scope is, however it changes. Um, I agree, be humble, know that you don't know all of the answers. Um, but sometimes you've gotten here by running your mouth a little bit. So there's, there's a little bit of that there, too. <laughs> and always being able to articulate why you're doing this, why you think it's a good idea, the value that you're going to add to your organization and your public, and be able to talk to people about that in 30-second snippets from a communication standpoint is key. Yes. And I think the point that Karina said about why is so key. Oftentimes I see people try to drive change either talking about the what or the how. That gets lost. If you've not led with the why, you're not going to actually be able to get to where you want to go. Um, and then also what she said about where you want to be in three years or two years. I often try to put at some point a point of no return because then you can't roll back the change that you rolled out. And so at the FCC, when we moved to either 100% public cloud or a commercial service provider, which we did achieve, we can't bring the servers back. In fact, we literally cut the cables that were here. So there's no return. So always, so, so the communication, the ability to communicate well is a critical component of this. 
communication that's appropriate for your sector, right? The IT folks, if you talk about waterfall and agile and scrum, right, that's their the whole language that fortunately I know some about, but that's probably about it. Um, so being able to communicate effectively within the circles that you are trying to influence or get information from. Um, and sometimes that changes. I would say another thing that the change agents that I've encountered, something that I really value in them is that they can speak more than one language. And I, I don't mean that from a perspective of I speak Spanish or French, but it's I'm not illiterate in what it is David is trying to do. I understand it enough. I might not be able to write fluently in it, but I can actually speak it. And that helps as a change agent to understand the same common vocabulary that people are using to understand why they need to do something. So the ability to, the ability to speak in the language of your constituency or stakeholders. Absolutely. Very much. And you have to be multilingual. The other thing I would also say is communication with the goal of, one, learning and listening, but then, two, also building trust. Um, there's a reason why Karina and I dress this way, that we don't always wear a T-shirt and blue jeans to work, even if we might want to, because while that might be a way of changing the culture, is that really towards the end that you want to go to, or would you prefer to have this be camouflage? And I do admit that this is camouflage, because I don't wear this at home. But I wear this camouflage because what I want people to really focus on is more the other things I'm trying to drive change on versus whether or not you're wearing a tie or not. Now, that said, I expect my developers, they're more than welcome to wear blue jeans, but when I go to the hill, I'm probably not wearing blue jeans. Any other final points of advice? So, Karina, what advice do you have for somebody who is working in the government who, or, or in any large organization, doesn't have to just be the government, working in a large organization, wanting to drive positive change with the best of intentions and is just being beaten back. What should that person do? I, I like to tell people, never walk into a room and apologize for who you are or who you aren't. Focus on what you know you can do well and how you can provide value to the people that you're doing it for. You will always come out ahead. So provide, so always be sure that you are providing value, which of course, now in order to do that, you have to be un undertaking the steps you, just, you, you, you both were describing earlier, including listening to their stories, uh, communicating so that you have credibility. So, so it requires all of that, doesn't it? Absolutely. I know we're short on time, but I want to tell this one vignette that I'm not sure I've told you. When I was about 16, I was working in a nursing home. It was one of my first jobs, and I was working in the kitchen. And I really could not stand being a server or being out on the floor. So I would volunteer to come in at 4 in the morning and do all of the prep as long as I didn't have to go out. One day we were short-staffed, and I had to go out and serve. And I wasn't familiar with the, the people that were in the community. And there was one gentleman that was asking for bacon. And he really, really wanted bacon. And so I went back to the kitchen and I looked, and all there were were, like, these bits and pieces of, like, you know, cafeteria-style bacon that's at the bottom of the, the bin. So I went back out, and I said, you know, there's really not any good bacon to bring you. There's just, like, these crumbly bits, and they're, they're not good, and, and, you know, we're just out of bacon. And he told me, he demanded that I go back there and I bring him whatever it is that was there. So I did. 
I was 16, I was differential, I was trying to do the best job that I could, and I scraped up these oily, gross bits because I thought this is what the guy wanted. And I go back out and I give it to him, and he stands up and he berates me, yells at me that I didn't respect him enough to bring him actual bacon. And I later learned that, that maybe he hadn't remembered the earlier conversation. But it stuck with me, and the thing that I learned was never present something to somebody that you don't have full confidence in is going to be the right product. I don't know if the guy should be eating bacon. For all I know, he was supposed to be on a diet, and I never worked out there. So there's a lot of other lessons of what questions I should have been asking. But the bottom line is always stuck with me. Even if I don't think that I'm getting it right, I'm giving you the best thing that I can, and I'm listening. Okay, so if you're not listening, it ain't going to work. And David, uh, we're just about out of time here. So your, your advice to that person who's struggling trying to drive change. Uh, the first would be look up the poem by Richard Kipling, 1895, called If, uh, recognizing that we probably need to adapt it for our 21st century to be all humanity. The first two lines are, if you can keep your head about you when all are losing theirs and blaming on you. If you can trust yourself when all men and women doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. I think that really embodies that you need to, one, believe in yourself, but also have that humbleness to step outside of yourself and say, maybe I'm missing something. And then the other thing is, whatever environment you're in, recognize. It spoke about you bringing your talents to that environment, but it's also about that environment appreciating the talents you bring. And if after you've tried to be a change agent for six months or nine months, that environment is not appreciating the talents you brought, guess what? There are plenty of other environments, and maybe you should go there. Okay. Well, amazingly, amazingly great advice. And this conversation, you know, it's, it feels like we've been talking for five minutes, but we've been talking for 45 minutes. So I want to thank you both. Uh, this has been episode number 140 of... CXO Talk. I'm Michael Krigsman, and today we have been speaking with Karina Dubois, who is the who is with the Department of Defense, and David Bray, who is with the Federal Communications Commission about change agents, being a change agent in a large organization. Karina and David, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thanks for having us, Michael. Thank you. And everybody, thanks for watching. Next week, we'll be talking with the chief marketing officer of Arrow Electronics, a huge, huge company. Join us then, and please like us on Facebook. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.